Today is Wednesday, January the 31st, 2024. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key. Now we've learned the National Security Agency, that's the NSA, has been purchasing Americans' internet browsing records from data brokers without first obtaining a search warrant. Big Tech has been collecting and aggregating your personal data. Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We've been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40-plus years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comments at hank at pcradioshow.org. Tonight, we will cover the following news. NSA is buying your browser data. HP funded a study to justify bricking printers that use third-party ink. The Federal Trade Commission opens investigation into big tech's partnerships with AI startups. And the IRS is piloting a free new tax preparation software. Consumer reports that each Facebook user is monitored by thousands of companies. HP CEO says they brick printers that use third-party ink because of hackers? The company says it wants to protect you from viruses. Experts, however, are skeptical. Last Thursday, HP CEO Enrique Loris address the company's controversial practice of bricking printers when users load them with third-party ink. He said, We have seen what you can embed viruses in the cartridges. Through the cartridge, the virus can go to the printer and then from the printer go to the network. That frightening scenario could help explain why HP, which was hit this month with another lawsuit over its dynamic security system, insist on deploying it to printers. Most industry experts do not know of any attacks actively used in the wild that are capable of using a cartridge to infect the printer. Cybersecurity professionals, many with expertise in embedded device hacking, were decidedly skeptical. Unsurprisingly, Loris' claim comes from HP Back Research. The company's bug bounty program task researchers from BugCrowd with determining if it's possible to use an ink cartridge as a cyber threat. HP argued that ink cartridge microcontroller chips, which are used to communicate with the printer, can be an entryway for attacks. As detailed in a 2022 article from research firm Actionable Intelligence, a researcher in the program found a way to hack a printer via a third-party ink cartridge. However, the researcher was reportedly unable to perform the same hack with an HP cartridge. HP chief technologist of print security said at the time the following, A researcher found a vulnerability over the serial interface between the cartridge and the printer. Essentially, they found a buffer overflow. That's where you have got an interference that you may not have tested or validated well enough, and the hacker was able to overflow into memory beyond the bounds of that particular buffer, and that gives them the ability to inject code into the device. He added that the malware remained on the printer in memory after the cartridge was removed. HP acknowledges that there is no evidence of such a hack occurring in the wild. Still, because chips used in third-party ink cartridges are reprogrammable, their code can be modified via a resetting tool right in the field. According to actionable intelligence, they're less secure, the company says. The chips are said to be programmable so that they can still work in printers 
after firmware updates. HP also questions the security of third-party ink companies' supply chains, especially compared to its own supply chain security, which is ISO slash IEC certified. So HP did find a theoretical way for cartridges to be hacked, and it's reasonable for the company to issue a bug bounty to identify such a risk. But its solution for this threat was announced before it showed that there could be a threat. HP added in-cartridge security training to its bug bounty program in 2020, and the above research was released in 2022. HP started using dynamic security in 2016, ostensibly to solve the problem that is sought to prove exists years later. Further, there's a sense from cybersecurity professionals that even if such a threat exists, it would take a high level of resources and skills which are usually reserved for target high-profile victims. Realistically, the vast majority of individual consumers and businesses shouldn't have serious concerns about ink cartridges being used to hack their machines. Loris said that non-HP ink can create all sorts of issues, saying that printers may stop working if a customer uses ink that is not designed to work with HP printers. Of course, Third-party ink manufacturers would have you believe that their ink is meant to work with the printer's brand on the product's boxes. But depending on the quality of the product, you might find inconsistent results with third-party ink cartridges. While brand recognition and reliability could be good reasons for someone to opt for an HP brand cartridge over third parties, such decisions are typically left to customers not forced via firmware updates. Companies like HP can expect to be rewarded for superior products, support, and warranties, but customers who would rather risk quality to save money would prefer to have options. It's clear that HP tactics are meant to coax HP printer owners into committing to HP Inc., which helps the company drive recurring revenue, and makes up for money lost when the printers are sold. Loris confirmed in his interview that HP loses money when it sells a printer and makes money through supplies. HP sells printers that work with third-party ink now, but the company says it may update them in the future to block cartridges using a non-HP chip or modified or non-HP circuitry from working in the printer, including cartridges that work today. When people buy an HP printer, they consider it an investment. But HP thinks that when you buy a printer, the company is investing in you. HP expects customers who already gave it money for a printer to continue paying the company for years. HP customers expect their purchase to pay off in the long term without stipulations on ink branding. If HP cannot find a way to make printer customers feel like their purchase is a benefit rather than a commitment to giving HP money regularly, people may eventually stop thinking that HP printers are a worthy investment. The IRS is piloting new software that could let you file your taxes for free. The Internal Revenue Service is piloting a new program this year that aims to help Americans file their taxes directly to the government for free, known as direct file. The service will be open to certain filers in select states at the start so the IRS can test the program with a smaller group of users and make tweaks before opening it up to a larger group of taxpayers in the future. This year's tax season begins at the end of January when the IRS begins accepting and processing tax returns. Last year, the IRS began developing a free tax filing service months after receiving an influx of $80 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRS is building its own online tax filing system. Tax prep companies aren't very happy at all. The free service has gotten a pushback from TurboTax maker Intuit which call it a solution in search of a problem. But the IRS has maintained that direct file will make what can be a complex and costly endeavor simpler and free. 
the IRS previously partnered with private companies to create another free tax filing program called Free File, but only about 2% of eligible taxpayers use it. The companies that participated, some of them have made it very difficult for eligible taxpayers to use it. Well, who is eligible to use the IRS new tax filing service? At the outset, only federal and state employees in certain tax situations will be eligible to participate in the direct file pilot program. Additionally, the pilot will only be open to people who lived in these states in 2023. Arizona, California, Florida, Massachusetts, Nevada, New Hampshire, New York, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. The pilot is further limited by a user's tax situation. People who itemize their deductions, earn gig or business income, or claim certain tax credits aren't eligible to participate right now. The service is available in both English and Spanish. The IRS said that it's starting with a limited number of users to follow software launch best practices and that it expects to gradually open up the program to more people and will provide updates about that process on its website. How does DirectFile work? DirectFile will be available to users on a computer, tablet, or smartphone. You don't have to download any software. The IRS is also offering live chat support with an option for a follow-up phone call to people who need help using direct file. The NSA is supposed to go to court if they want your data or anything about your personal information. Well, they think they found a loophole. Data brokers are selling loads of Americans' data to the U.S. government according to Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. The National Security Agency, that's the NSA, is purchasing Americans' internet records, according to government documents made public last Friday. U.S. Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, wrote a letter claiming the NSA goes through back-channel avenues to purchase your browsing records and location data, which government agencies typically require a search warrant to obtain. The U.S. government should not be funding and legitimizing a shady industry whose flagrant violations of Americans' privacy are not just unethical, but illegal, said Wyden in a letter to the Director of National Intelligence. The NSA seems to buy American metadata from data brokers, according to the unsealed documents. Popular app developers sell your data to these shady companies as Wyden refers to them, and ultimately sells it to the United States Department of Defense. Wyden says he has fought for three years to publicly reveal this information after finding in 2021 that the Defense Intelligence Agency purchases American location data. In the letter, he asked that the United States intelligence community obtain data through legal means set forth by the Federal Trade Commission moving forward. The metadata the National Security Agency is buying can reveal loads of personal information about you. It can expose if you purchase a gun, where you vote, sensitive medical records, your financial status, and even your sexuality. Typically, you'll need to be alerted if this data was breached from where you originally shared it. But through data brokers, this data can end up in all kinds of places including the NSA. The unsealed documents contain letters from Ronald Moultrie, United States Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. He writes that the NSA buys commercial data to conduct intelligence or cybersecurity missions. Moultrie says that because this is commercially available data and is available to foreign adversaries as well, it should be okay to use. According to recent reports, the National Security Agency has been purchasing Americans' browser history without obtaining warrants. This practice has raised concerns about privacy and potential misuse of personal information. The Supreme Court ruling in Carpenter v. United States in 2018 
established that the government needs a warrant to access a person's cell phone location history under the Fourth Amendment. However, it is important to note that the specific legality surrounding the NSA's purchase of browser history without warrants may vary and require further examination. The collection and use of individuals' browser history by the NSA without warrants have raised significant privacy concerns. Critics argue that web browsing records can contain sensitive and private information about a person's online activities and should be protected. The potential for misuse or unauthorized access to this information is a cause for concern among privacy advocates. The NSA's purchase of Americans' browser history without obtaining warrants has sparked debates about privacy, legal boundaries, and the potential risk associated with the collection and use of personal information. It is important to stay informed about development in this area and to advocate for policies that strike a balance between national security and individual privacy. In 2018, the Supreme Court ruled in Carpenter and United States that the government needs a warrant to access a person's cell phone location history under the Fourth Amendment. Moultrie states that this does not apply if a government agency purchases data that is commercially available, but that position is being disputed by Senator Wyden. Unfortunately, it's not entirely surprising that American data is ending up all over the place. New research shows that iPhone apps like Facebook, LinkedIn, and TikTok are harvesting your data when they send you notifications. It's the latest development in a long story of your data becoming anything but private. The unsealed documents don't explicitly mention apps that are selling your data to data brokers, and it seems that these data brokers are a huge culprit in this scandal as well. The existence of data brokers is not entirely new. As it was previously reported, they were selling lists of people with mental health disorders last year. The NSA has a long history of invasive surveillance techniques that undermine the privacy of American citizens. The curtain of internet privacy is peeled back more and more these days, but this latest development shows how severe the problem is. FTC opens investigation into big tech's partnerships with leading AI startups. U.S. antitrust enforcers are opening an investigation into the relationships between leading artificial intelligence startups such as ChatGPT maker OpenAI and Anthropic and the tech giants that have invested billions of dollars into them. The action targets Amazon, Google, and Microsoft and their sway over the generative AI boom that fueled demand for chatbots such as ChatGPT and other AI tools that can produce novel imagery and sound. Linda Kahn, chair of the U.S. Federal Trade Commission said, we're scrutinizing whether these ties enable dominant firms to exert undue influence or gain privilege access in ways that could undermine fair competition. Khan said the market inquiry would review the investments and partnerships being formed between AI developers and major cloud service providers. The FTC said Thursday that it issued compulsory orders to five companies, cloud providers Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and AI startups, Anthropic and OpenAI, requiring them to provide information regarding investments and partnerships. Microsoft's year-long relationship with OpenAI is the best known of the partnerships. Google and Amazon have more recently made multi-billion dollar deals with Anthropic, another San Francisco-based AI startup, formed by former leaders at OpenAI. Amazon, Google, and Microsoft did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Anthropic and OpenAI declined comment. The European Union and the United Kingdom have already signaled that they might also scrutinize the relationship with Microsoft and OpenAI. The EU's executive branch said in January it was checking whether the partnership might trigger an investigation 
under regulations covering mergers and acquisitions that would harm competition in its 27-nation bloc. Britain's antitrust watchdog opened a similar review in December. Antitrust advocates welcomed the actions from both the FTC and Europe into the deals that some have derided as quasi-mergers. Matt Stoller, director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project, said, Big tech firms know they can't buy the top AI companies, so instead they are finding ways of exerting influence without formally calling it an acquisition. Enforcers need to step in, and they are. The FTC has signaled for nearly a year that it is working to track and stop illegal behavior in the use and development of AI tools. In April, that the U.S. government would not hesitate to crack down on harmful business practices involving AI. One target of popular concern is the case of AI-generated voices and imagery to turbocharge fraud and phone scams. But increasingly, Khan also made clear that it's not just harmful applications, but the broader consolidation of market power into a handful of AI leaders that deserves government scrutiny. The FTC said companies may use this market tipping moment to leverage anti-competitive tactics to lock in their dominance and block competition. The companies have 45 days to provide information to the FTC that includes their partnership agreements and the strategic rationale behind them. They're also being asked for detailed information about decision-making around product releases and the key resources and services needed to build AI systems. Each Facebook user is monitored by thousands of companies. A consumer reports analysis looks at who is sending information about your online activity to Facebook. By now, most internet users know their online activity is constantly tracked. No one should be shocked to see ads for items they previously searched for or to be asked if their data can be shared with an unknown number of partners. But what is the scale of this surveillance? Judging from data collected by Facebook and newly described in a unique study by Consumer Reports, it's massive, and examining the data may leave you with more questions than answers. Using a panel of 709 volunteers who shared archives of their Facebook data, Consumer Reports found that a total of 186,892 companies sent data about them to the social network. On average, each participant in the study had their data sent to Facebook by 2,230 companies. That number varied significantly, with some panelists' data listing over 7,000 companies providing their data. The markup helped Consumer Report recruit participants for the study. Participants downloaded an archive of the previous three years of their data from their Facebook settings then provided it to consumer reports. By collecting data this way, the study was able to examine a form of tracking that is normally hidden, so-called server-to-server tracking, in which personal data goes from a company's server to Meta's servers, and another form of tracking in which Meta's tracking pixels are placed on companies' websites is visible to users' browsers. Because the data came from a self-selected group of users and because the results were not demographically adjusted, the study does not make any claims about how representative this sample is of the U.S. population as a whole. Consumer Reports says participants were also likely more privacy conscious and technically inclined than typical users and more likely to be members of Consumer Reports. 2,230 different companies on average share data on each participant. Despite its limitations, the study offers a real look, using data directly from Meta on how personal information is collected and aggregated online. Meta spokesperson defended the company's practices. We offer a number of transparency tools to help people understand the information that businesses choose to share with us and manage how it's used. While Meta does provide transparency tools like the one that enabled the study, 
consumer reports identified problems with them, including that the identity of many data providers is unclear from the names disclosed to users and that companies that provide services to advertisers are often allowed to ignore opt-out requests. So what exactly does this data contain? The data examined by consumers' reports in this study comes from two types of collection, events and custom audiences. Both categories include information about what people do outside of Meta's platforms. Custom audiences allow advertisers to upload customer lists to Meta, often including identifiers like email addresses and mobile advertising IDs. These customers and so-called look-alike audiences made up of similar people can then be targeted with ads on Meta's platforms. The other category of data collection, events, which describes interactions that the user had with a brand which can occur outside of Meta's apps and in the real world. Events can include going to a page on a company's website, leveling up in a game, going to a physical store, or purchasing a product. These signals originate from Meta's software code included in many mobile apps, their tracking pixel, which is included on many websites, and from server-to-server tracking, where a company's server passes data to a Meta server. In the report, consumer reports calls for a number of policy proposals covering data collection practices, some of which could be part of a national digital privacy law, something that the organization has long advocated for. The recommendations specifically aimed at Meta's technology and the advertisers who use it include requiring companies to adopt data minimization strategies which call for the collection of the absolute minimum amount of data needed to provide the service being offered, expanding the powers of authorized agents to act on behalf of consumers to act on their rights, increasing ad transparency by creating ad archives that allow the public to see all ads that have been served to users on a platform, following the lead of the European Union Digital Services Act, improving the quality and readability of the data that Meta makes available in its existing transparency tools so that consumers can actually act on the information they review. For now, the lack of a federal privacy law leaves consumers in most states with few options. For the last couple of weeks, EV drivers have been wrestling with cold weather, sapping their battery range. Many are finding cold temperatures reduce their car's driving range. Winter weather can cause bigger headaches for electric vehicle drivers than shoveling their driveways. AAA researchers have found fully electric vehicles, which run exclusively on battery packs, typically lose an average of 41% of their range when outdoor temperatures drop to 20 degrees. That's because batteries don't work as efficiently in the cold and regulating cabin temperatures can gobble up a significant amount of power. Many drivers across the country are likely to face frustration this winter. There are more EVs on American roadways than ever before, with a record 1.2 million sold nationwide in 2023, according to Cox Automotive. Sales are still rising, but some consumers have been put off by a dearth of charging infrastructure that remains a work in process. Now, the bitter cold sweeping into parts of the United States is giving many current and would-be EV drivers another reason for range anxiety. EV batteries work less efficiently in very cold weather, requiring some drivers to charge their vehicles more frequently. The way engines work plays a big part in how a car is heated. The CEO of Recurrent, a company that measures EV battery performance, said that around 10% of a gas engine's vehicle energy is used for forward momentum, compared to 90% in EVs. With all electric models, there's not a lot of waste heat that you can just use to warm up the cabin. He also said that This puts more onus on the battery to do so. Auto industry experts said EVs built with heat pumps for warming their interiors 
will undergo less battery strain in cold weather. Most newer models have them, but less efficient resistive heaters are more common in older vehicles. It is estimated that EVs with heat pumps lose an average of 20% of their range in extreme weather compared up to 40% in those without heat pumps. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, technology, and how this is all evolving on a regular basis. I want to take you back five years ago. Five years ago, working from home was not something that happened a whole lot. Yeah, you might have people that here and there they would work from home and they were the exception, not the rule. And then almost four years ago, it's it's four years and, and weeks away, you know, depending on how you look at it and when when your particular company went to work via remote and all of that and what role you play in your company. Big, huge things. But it's about four years ago. We had an experience that really changed up everything. All of a sudden, everybody or a lot of people were working from home. They were work via remote just for a few weeks. And then it was a few weeks more and a few weeks more. And even even now, a lot of people still work from home. And we have these discussions that go back and forth about all kinds of new work-life balances, work-life uh, wellness, and, and where should we be? Should we all go back to the office? Should we all go into a hybrid? Should we all continue with the work-from-home concept? And there are as many opinions as there are people in the country. And it's starting to come out that... Yes, people do have their own personal approach to this, and they have their own personal choices that they wish to exercise. And I'll tell you, that's that's actually something that they did a survey on. And there was a, a corporate wellness platform called Gym Pass, and they did the exactly that, the state of work-life wellness And they interviewed 5,000 full-time workers, and they found out that what the workers wanted, where they figured that the best place to work was remote or hybrid or in-office full-time. Wait, what? Yes, fully balanced all the way across. Yes, a third of them said, I want to work from home. A third of them said, you know what? I'm good with hybrid. A third of them said, I want to go back to the office. I'm afraid of my family. I, I They're going to kill me if I stay at home much longer. Okay, maybe not that route. But you get the idea of where I'm going. There are people who want to go to the office. There are people who want to go to the office once or twice a week, maybe even three times. And there are people, and, and I'm in that last group, I want to stay home. I I enjoy via doing all of this via remote. I can uh, I can go and I can sit at my workstation. I can go and I can follow my own habits throughout the day. Take lunch whenever I want to, and I I, I take a legitimate just uh, you know the proper length lunch for my hours and all of that, and I can make whatever I want for lunch. And that's actually, for me, I find it's a little bit healthier and so forth. But this is my choice. This is my approach. This is how I feel. You follow where I'm going with this? You don't have to feel that way. The key thing is, if you're an employer, you need to be aware of this. You need to be aware that... This may be the best benefit, allowing your employees to work as they see fit. Now, that means they need to be productive. That means they need to get their job done. That means that, yes, they need to be actual employees, dedicated employees to what's going on. 
Don't hold a higher standard because they're working via remote. Don't hold a higher standard because they're in the office or because they're hybrid. Don't hold a lower standard either. Instead, meet your people where they need to be. Now, if you're an employee, this is the same message I would have you go forward with. Because you realize, I hope by now, you realize that there are people, your coworkers, there are some of your coworkers that, yeah, maybe, maybe Joe over here, Joe really needs to be in the office. He needs to be monitored. But Susie over there, Susie's doing a bang up job. You know, we went for work via remote uh, for that period of time and her productivity went through the roof. That's great. We need to be going through this. We need to be thinking about this on a grander scale. I'll tell you, there have been some times over the course of the last four years where I got a little bit of the sniffles. And if I had been required to go into the office in the post-COVID world, I I would have said, okay, I've got a sniffle. You don't want me in the office. So if we're work from office only, well, that's, that's a problem. So I wouldn't work. But instead, I can sit at my desk at home with uh, with sniffles, even a, a, a low-grade fever. You know, I'm feeling okay, a little under the weather. You know what? I'm, I'm at 90%. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have me not work or would you rather have me at 90% and know when I'm going to sit here and I'm going to fight through this? And if I don't sit here and fight through this, all I'm going to do is I'm going to sit in front of a computer and I'm just going to play video games until I get better. So I'm still sitting in front of a computer. Why don't you make me more productive? I mean, this is, again, my approach. This is my direction on this. And yes, if I get really sick, 50% uh, effectiveness, no, I'm going to go crawl into bed. But you got the idea. This actually is good as long as you're taking your employees into consideration and what their feelings are and allowing them to make the choice. That is probably one of the better benefits than a lot of these weird things like, oh, we we have this gym membership that we help subsidize, uh, you know, here and there, stuff like that. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Software Perpetual Licenses Evolving into Software Subscriptions Like it or not, the future is all about subscriptions. We've been in the software as a subscription era for more than a decade now. The transformation from perpetual licenses to monthly or annual fees is nearly complete. Adobe initiated software subscription in 2013 when it replaced its creative suite with the subscription-based Creative Cloud product. Instead of shelling out $2,600 for a new license and then $600 for upgrades, you got the entire collection for a flat $50 per month, with updates delivered for free. Despite some complaints from customers, the plan worked out well for Adobe. That was also the year Microsoft officially transitioned its development of Office, the granddaddy of shrink wrap software to the subscription-based cloud-first Office 365. The Microsoft 365 brand took over starting in 2017. Apple expanded the universe dramatically in 2016 when it changed the App Store rules to allow subscription-based pricing for apps in any category. Previously, app developers had to count on selling licenses and upgrades to remain in business. Smaller developers have jumped on the subscription bandwagon, too. Even the enterprise space is switching to the subscription model. VMware announced that it would no longer offer perpetual licensing and would instead sell its entire line of services through two cloud-based platforms. But why can't we just buy software and be done with it? That business model was good enough 20 years ago. So why not today? What change? For starters... No one in small and medium-sized businesses wants to pay $500 for a software license anymore. But that's what some serious productivity tools cost. If you dig deep enough on Adobe's site, for example, you can find a perpetual license version of Acrobat Pro 2020, $538.80, plus tax, of course. And please note that it's supported until June 1, 2025. So you probably need an upgrade in the next year or so 
which will set you back another $238.80. Too much? Okay, how about $19.95 a month for the Creative Cloud version instead? Adobe would even throw in a bunch of cloud storage and some cloud-based services to sweeten the deal. And upgrades would be free and automatic as long as you're a subscriber. At that monthly price, you'll wind up paying the same overall cost as a perpetual license version over the course of 39 months. But $20 a month is easier on your day-to-day budget than that big lump sum. That's the same math that every product developer, big and small, is running when they make the decision to ditch perpetual licenses in favor of a steady revenue stream. Instead of a single, big influx of payments that then drops to a trickle, the companies can count on a continual stream of cash, as long as their customers find their app or service valuable enough to keep paying, month after month. From the customer side, having a software subscription also means that you don't have to deal with the hassles of product keys and online activation and transferring licenses when you change hardware. With a subscription-based product, you sign in using your cloud credentials to use the app, and there's a dashboard where you can activate new devices and deactivate ones you're no longer using. With Microsoft 365 Family subscription, you can run the software of up to 10 devices at a time, five PCs, five tablets. Adobe, meanwhile, allows you to remain signed into Acrobat and other Creative Cloud apps on two devices at a time. If you were a software developer with a popular app and you wanted to build a sustainable business, which payments model would you choose? Selling perpetual licenses mean you get a big surge in revenue with each new release, but then you have to watch that cash pods window as you work on the next version and try to convince your customers to pay for the upgrade. If you want the opportunity to continually improve your product, you need to bring in enough revenue each year to justify the time and resources you spend on the project. That's the difference between a sustainable business and a hobby. The real objection to software as a subscription isn't to the business model, but rather to the price. If you think a fair price for a piece of software is closer to $50 than $500, then you should be able to use it in perpetuity. But you're telling the developer you're willing to pay them no more than a few bucks a month. They're trying to tell you that's not enough to sustain a software business, and maybe you should try a free open source option instead. All the developers that are migrating to a cloud-based subscription model are taking a necessary step to help ensure their long-term survival. The challenge for companies playing in this space is to make crystal clear that their subscriptions offer real value and a charge that's worth paying for indefinitely. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Uh, this is this is I know that a lot of different things that we do in life involve higher grade technology than what we had 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Or like in this case, um, I'm going to you with you. You've got a lot of knowledge in in the do it yourself world. My my grandfather, he almost took off some of his fingers. I mean, there was there was it was a crazy accident with he was using a table saw and he wasn't really thinking about it at the moment. Got got casual, and I I want to I feel like I want to get into some of this some of this woodworking because I got a lot of things to do and I I really want to know are are saws. Um, are, are they intrinsically unsafe? Uh, is there anything that's come along that's changed the world? Saws, saws are a lot safer than they had been. Okay. User is the intrinsically unsafe part of most of it, but okay. there are exceptions. Right. Now, skill. We know the skill tool brand. It's S-K-I-L, like word, yeah. Yeah, like the word silk spelled inside out, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, skill is yes. a, a major longtime leading brand in power sauce. Okay, so yeah, yeah. I went to them and asked what measures are in their table saw products to prevent fingers from encountering saw blades in the first place. Okay. Now, they call it the smart guard system. There's a blade guard assembly that covers most of the exposed saw teeth mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. on the blade with, without getting in the way of where the stock, the wood you're cutting, 
goes through the cutting line. Mm -hmm. One major factor that impacts hand exposure is a thing called kickback. And most uh, now kickback happens on the far side of the saw. Mm-hmm. The saw is going down on the front edge, going up on the other edge, and that can drive it up at the split where, okay. where the two right. pieces come apart, right? Uh, well, most saws incorporate safety measures to reduce kickback. It can happen when the far end of the blade comes up through its slot and engages what you're cutting. Anti-kickback pawls, P-A-W-L-S, pawls, significantly okay. reduce that. They're over that exit point and above the cut stock, limiting how high the exiting stock can jump, how, how far up can rise. Okay. Little tiny space. Now, and you're talking, when you say stock, you're talking the wood. Yeah, the wood. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, a riving knife, or in some saws, a splitter or spreader, is just behind the saw blade and helps the pieces from each side of the cut separate so it's a little forced divider we've been seeing them on the highway why not on a saw right okay so so it's it's kind of preventing the wood from collapsing in and then getting stuck and, in the blade and, and snagging kicking on up. the yeah, blade okay. yeah to, or kicking kick kick back you said back, okay right. okay go on yeah. uh well there are also some inexpensive saw accessories called push sticks a lot of guys who do carpentry make their own yeah it's just a way to Push the board through. Mm-hmm. It goes between your hand and the stock you're cutting. It separates your finger from the blade spin line. Mm-hmm. Now, looking through skills manuals, I see instructions for making your own push sticks and push blocks and feather boards, which are one way to hold small pieces in place as you cut. And you may have heard this before. Read the factory manual. Yes. Right? Yes. The safety guidelines are excellent. Think of every way you can put your fingers where the saw blade can cut them, and they'll show you a way to avoid it. But there are some claims out there that buyer beware. Okay, all right. All right. Saw stop, S-A-W-S-T-O-P. I've heard of them, yes. Uh, They've they've got a, a commercial or something where people are putting hot dogs through? Oh, yeah. They, yeah. Uh, they're a company that makes, uh, and note the word I'm going to use because it has deeper meaning. They make incredible safety claims for their table saws. And when I say incredible, what I mean is that I don't believe them. So they, so you're saying incredible is in they lack credibility uh-huh. in your book. Okay. Yeah. Their brand's core gimmick is a metal brake that stops the saw's rotation in roughly five milliseconds. When onboard electronics detect skin contact with the user, and that's supposed to prevent cuts. Okay. Uh, I smart enough. How to do fast them. is that blade going? Yeah, four thousand RPM. So, so, so when I pressed the issue, okay. they admitted yeah. that they couldn't prevent what they termed minor cuts, but stopping the blade would prevent major ones. Oh yeah. Their statement quote: Since 2004, a saw stop has saved thousands of woodworkers' fingers. In journalism, that's called a boast without evidence or overstatement, exaggeration, or hyperbole. My problem... Yeah, how many did they not stop? (laughs) How many people really have it? Did they multiply their user base by 10 to get that? (laughs) You know, my problem is that the math doesn't seem to fit. It's a 10-inch circular saw blade spinning at 4,000 RPM. Okay, yeah. That puts its circumference of saw teeth at 31 and a half inches. Mm Mm-hmm. And in five milliseconds, ten and a half inches of teeth pass by any one point. Okay. Even if the hey, breaking that doesn't sound good. No. Even if the breaking were not abrupt, that would be at least six inches of exposure. Then there's the electronics. Response times depend on the detection of a current, and that response time will have some dependency on elements like lower skin conductivity because of dryness or gloves. I asked the company to double check my math or if they didn't want to do that to send me a unit so I could do my own bench tests of response time and exposure. Put your own fingers on the line? Yeah, they declined both. They sometimes present their products with a slow motion video demo or a demo of a hot dog mm-hmm. touching the blade. Note that a hot dog tends to have more meat inside and more moistness outside than human fingers, which uh, would cause faster detection of a wiener than a person. Maybe they should change their name from Saw Stop to Sausage Stop. Oh. <laughs> a 
as for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell, and that's Marty Winston. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, February the 1st. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, February the 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi, and their website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. The telephone number is 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, February the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is bcug.com. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, February the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group will meet Friday, February the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.